So when the Spirit of God was given on the day of Pentecost, many different people from many different regions, speaking many different languages, all heard the proclamation of the Word of God in their own native language. And so throughout this practice, each time we hear the word read, we're going to hear it in different languages that are represented here within our own church family. So to start this new tradition that we'll carry throughout the practice, I'm going to welcome Oleg, who's going to read our teaching text for us today. Good morning. Um, my name is Oleg. I've been a part of Bridgetown for about five or six years. Um, I'm in the community group also here in Northeast, and uh, we're going to read today from John chapter 20, verses 19 through 23. And can we all stand for the reading? First, I'm going to read in Ukrainian. I'm Ukrainian. I grew up um, in Ukraine. Um, and then the second would be Russian and then English. So here we go. Того ж дня, дня першого тижня, коли вечір настав і двері, де зібралися учні, були замкнуті, бо боялися юдеїв, з'явився Ісус і став посеред них і промовляє до них мир вам. І сказавши оце, показав він своїм руки та бока, і учні зраділи, побачивши Господа. Тоді знову сказав їм Ісус: "Мир вам, як отець послав мене, так і я посилаю вас". Сказавши оце, він дунув на них та говорить: "Прийміть Духа Святого". Кому простите гріхи, тому простяться. На ком затримаєте, на тих затримаються. В той же перший день неділі, вечором, коли двері були замкнуті із-за боязні від іудеїв, прийшов Ісус і став посеред них і говорить їм: "Мир вам". Сказав это, он говорит им, показал им руки і ребра і сказав: "Опять мир вам". Як послав мене отець, так і я посилаю вас. Сказав это, он дунув на них і говорить: "Прийміть, прийміть Духа Святого. Кому простите гріхи, тому простяться, а на кому оставите, на тому останутся". Thank you. On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for the fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, "Peace be with you." After he said this, he showed him his hands and side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Jesus said, "Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you." And with that, he breathed on them and said, "Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven." This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Yeah, Lord, thank you for this reminder that when we open your word, that we are a part of a family that includes every tribe and tongue, that the message of your gospel is being declared in all the nations. We give you praise, Lord Jesus. Your kingdom is the one that lasts forever. Amen. You can have a seat. So I, I, I want to get to that scene, but I actually want to begin today 72 hours prior to what we just read, on the final night of Jesus' life, when he said something that is very difficult to understand, even for the most seasoned disciples. And it went something like this, I'm going away, but that's going to make it so much better. John 14, 15, and 16 is this one long conversation between Jesus and the Twelve. Wedged right between the Last Supper and his arrest at Gethsemane, Jesus cracks a wry smile and says something like, Look, 
My days with you are numbered, but I'm sending you my spirit, and that's even better. So according to Jesus, and he's remarkably clear about this, the Holy Spirit is a staggering improvement to a direct face-to-face conversation with God in the flesh. God's indwelling presence surpasses God in human form, and it's not even close. That's what he said. And the most interesting thing about that, to me at least, is we don't buy it. I mean, just show of hands, how many of you honestly, if you could, today, trade your experience with the Spirit of God so far for a direct face-to-face conversation with Jesus right now? Yeah? I mean, most of us, right? Regardless of maturity, commitment, gifting, education, most, if not all of us, are a bit underwhelmed with the experience of the very promise that got Jesus so excited. The better plan that made Jesus a touch giddy on the way to his own execution We'd trade it back if we could. So I want to talk to you today about the Holy Spirit. And the biblical understanding is that of a triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. And we mostly get the Father. I mean, he's God in heaven, parenting all of us, his children here on earth. And we understand the Son. He is God in human flesh who came to live among us, to uh, experience what we experience and reveal God to us from down here on our level. But the Holy Spirit is like an urban legend. I have heard the rumors, but has anyone actually spotted the Yeti? The Spirit is that person in your friend group that you know but have never had a direct face-to-face conversation with. You're, you're kind of related through these other mutual acquaintances that you have. And then there was that one dinner when all of you were together and everyone else had to go to the bathroom at the exact same moment. And you were left at the table together, just the two of you, trying to make conversation and you were dying inside. That's the Holy Spirit. From Genesis to Revelation, the Spirit is present and active and essential, and despite that, the tragic truth is that for much of the church in the modern West, the Holy Spirit is a familiar stranger. Christianity Today did a survey a couple of years back where they asked one simple question, true or false, the Holy Spirit is a force, not a person. 51% of responders said true, 7% said I don't know, 42% said false. So over half of American Christians think the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, is a force to be used, not a person to know and be known by. You know that old gospel language of I caught the Holy Spirit? Like I was in church today and I caught the Holy Spirit, we were sweating and singing in there for hours, that kind of thing. That, while good, is incomplete. And yet that is the dominant understanding of the Spirit in the church today. So I want to introduce you to the person of the Holy Spirit. Today is going to be a bit like trying to take a sip of water from a fire hose. I'm going to give you far more than you could take in. And that's okay. It's by design. I want to douse you in the imagination of Jesus for your life empowered by his spirit. And then we're going to spend a couple of months working out all of the implications and everything that it means. So this is a shove into the deep end. It is a playful, gentle shove. (laughs) But here comes the shove. Okay? So the Holy Spirit, a familiar stranger, I want to get acquainted with the Spirit in five biblical scenes. The Spirit in creation, the Old Testament, Jesus, the early church, and then us. 
We are going to work our way all the way through the scriptures. I'm going to ask you to do a painful amount of turning pages with me. And that's because I want you to see the Spirit in every scene in the story. And just so you have an anchor to hold on to as we make our way through, the key word to pay attention to is tabernacle or temple which are mostly interchangeable in the biblical narrative. So if you would turn with me in your Bibles all the way back to the very beginning, we're going to start in Genesis chapter 2. So if you would open to Genesis chapter 2, we're going to start with creation, and I'm going to begin there in verse 20. Genesis 2. But, Adam, but for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. This is the first surgery in human history, complete with divine anesthesia and everything, or anesthesia. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib that he had taken out of the man. Now, this is a familiar passage, but the word rib is pretty interesting here. It is the Hebrew selah, and it probably doesn't mean rib in the biological sense. This exact same word appears over 40 times elsewhere in the New Testament. Never again is it translated into English as rib. In almost every other instance, selah refers to uh, the side of a sacred piece of architecture, almost always referring to the side or the wall of the temple or the tabernacle. Now what that means for Genesis 2 is that in the beginning, Adam and Eve's bodies are called temples or tabernacles. Temples are houses for the presence of God, and so are our bodies. That's the revelation. Hang on to that. It's going to matter as we keep going. Now we'll move ahead into the Old Testament. If you would just turn to the very next book in the story, stick a finger in Exodus chapter 40, and I'm going to meet you there in just a minute. So throughout the Exodus story, God's presence is being described to us as a dense cloud. It's a cloud that guides the Israelites through the desert, and it's a cloud that descends on Mount Sinai when God meets with Moses face to face as a friend. Eventually, God instructs Moses to build a tabernacle. That's the Old Testament word for tent, which sounds ridiculous, right? Build me a tent so I can go camping with you as you wander on this journey through the wilderness. But it was actually a revolutionary thought at the time. Because every conception of God that we have recorded up to this point in history has God bound to a particular location. So there was the sun God and the moon God. There was the God of the sea and the God of the stars. And here is God on the move with his people. It's strikingly personal. God walking with us, staying with us, traveling with us wherever we go. This was a revolutionary idea that set Yahweh apart from every conception of God up to that point from any people. And to be fair, it was more glamping than camping because this was a really nice tent. It was made of acacia wood. It had several different rooms, all that sort of thing. So Exodus 40, the very final verses of this book, read this way. I'm going to begin in verse 34. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Now fast forward a bit in Israel's history. I'm going to give you a break for this one and put this one on the screen for you. First, first Kings. Israel has settled. They're not nomadic anymore. King Solomon upgrades God's house. He adds a guest room onto the tabernacle, so they start calling it a temple. A tent becomes more of a permanent home and sits right at the center of the city. And when they finish construction on this house, we read something familiar. This is First Kings 8. 
When the priest withdrew from the holy place, the cloud filled the temple of the Lord. And the priest could not perform their service because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled his temple. So here is the pattern that you'll see repeated in the Old Testament, that the tabernacle is good, but it's incomplete. It's good because God's presence is clearly among his people, and that is wildly progressive. No one was arguing about the existence of God in ancient Israel. Where is God? He's the dense cloud visibly filling the tent. But it's incomplete because there's no intimacy. See, in Moses' tabernacle, Moses couldn't even go in because the glory of God was so powerful. And as for the rest of the people, they're told, if you even put your foot on the base of the mountain where I'm meeting with Moses, you'll drop dead instantly. In Solomon's temple, the priest couldn't perform the service when God showed up. And only the high priest could enter the presence of God and only once a year on Yom Kippur. And even when that happened, they would tie a rope to his ankle just in case he dropped dead in God's presence so there was a way to retrieve the body. No one was arguing about the existence of God, but no one knew God on a personal level either. The tabernacle was a place of presence without intimacy. Now keep on turning in your Bible to the right until you hit John chapter 1. All of that brings us up to Jesus. I'm going to pick up in John chapter 1, verse 14. I can see that many of you are losing stamina for all this page turning, which I respect, but stick with me, okay? John 1, beginning in verse 14. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now, the English word dwelling is the Greek skenoo. Can you say that with me? Skenoo. Wonderful. That means tabernacle. It's ancient Greek for tabernacle. So the most direct translation of this verse is, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. The Old Testament pattern was build a tabernacle, and then God fills that tabernacle with his presence. John describes Jesus as a tabernacle filled with God's presence. The glory of the Lord that filled the tabernacle has now filled the body of Jesus. He is a living, breathing, walking, talking tabernacle. Now that's a lot more than just a clever play on words to open a biography. It is the basis by which we understand Jesus' life. Because Jesus goes around acting like he is the tabernacle. I mean, one of the reasons Jesus got himself into so much trouble with the priests is because he does a bunch of stuff that you could not do outside of the temple. And I'm not talking about minor social taboos. I mean, he was breaking the Torah. For instance, Jesus walks around saying to people, you're forgiven. What? No, no, it doesn't work like that. If you're in need of grace, you go through an elaborate series of cleansing rituals, you enter the temple, you offer the right sacrifices, and you get granted grace by the priest who's qualified to offer God's forgiveness to someone else. Really, where'd you get that? We got it from Moses, the founder of the tabernacle and the author of the law. You can't just go around breaking the Torah, and then here comes Jesus. No temple, no cleansing, no sacrifice, no priest. Do you want to repent? You're forgiven. You're set free. In Luke's gospel, the very first recorded time Jesus enters the temple as an adult, we read this. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he'd been brought up, and on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up and read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, unrolling, and he found the place where it is written, the Spirit of the Lord is on me. 
Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. After that, the entire congregation tried to push him off a cliff. That's how bad the sermon was. I've preached bad sermons. But it's never gone that bad. Here's the issue. The Spirit of the Lord is on me. Jesus is claiming to be the tabernacle. He's standing in the building. They believe God dwells in, and he's saying, no, no, no. I am the container for God's presence. I am the vessel filled with God's spirit. And that was a bit much. But to be fair, Jesus doesn't ask them just to accept that. I mean, he reads directly from their own scriptures about what it will look like when God's glory fills a person. It will look like priority toward the poor, freedom for the imprisoned, the healing of incurable diseases, and an outpouring of God's favor. And in the days that followed this declaration, what do we see? Does Jesus proclaim good news for the poor? Absolutely. Calls it the gospel. (laughs) What about freedom for the prisoner and the oppressed? All the time. He builds a movement by dignifying the oppressed. And what about, do the blind receive sight from Jesus? They certainly do, spiritually and literally, in every town that he goes to. Eventually, he makes this claim in John's gospel. Destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. Jesus said that while he was standing on the Temple Mount, which was one of the architectural wonders of the world. It had been under construction for two generations. Priests were offended because they think he's talking about the building. But John goes on to write, but the temple he had spoken of was his body. Jesus is talking about his Selah. He's talking about Adam's rib. He's talking about the first temple. He's hearkening all the way back to creation. His body, the living, breathing, walking, talking temple. Jesus was talking about the Holy Spirit. You may be building a container for God's presence. So am I. I'm making you the container for God's presence just like I did at first. And what I am building in three days through my death and resurrection is a dramatic upgrade. In fact, it's a replacement to what you've been working on for generations. That was Jesus' point. Moving right along, we'll go to the early church. We flip a few chapters ahead to John chapter 20. Here we are. We've made it to our teaching text. We have arrived where we began. John 20, beginning in verse 21, Oleg read this for us just a moment ago. Again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. So the message Jesus delivered to his disciples on resurrection evening was this, receive my spirit. The presence you've seen tabernacling in me, I now give it to you. Just as the Father sent me into this world as a living, breathing tabernacle, I now send you into this world as a living, breathing tabernacle. That's more than just poetry. Notice the line that follows. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. What do we make of that? And this is Jesus talking to ordinary people like you and me saying, if you forgive sins, they're forgiven. If you don't forgive them, they're not. Are you sure that's in the Bible, man? Yeah, that's in the Bible. That's message number one off the lips of Jesus to his followers after his resurrection. Well, what on earth does that mean? Remember how Jesus got himself into trouble for doing things that you could not do except if you were a qualified priest in the temple? 
He's saying, now you go and do those very things. He promises his spirit to his followers and then says, now you do it. Does that mean I should go around forgiving sins? No. It means that people should experience God's forgiveness by proximity to you because you are a temple carrying his presence with you wherever he goes. So Jesus is saying this, the presence and power of God that you have seen at work in me is now in you. And not as a comforting theory or as a poetic metaphor, but in actual practice. Right after that, we encounter the book of Acts when those very disciples go around doing stuff that you could not do outside of the temple. They're preaching forgiveness, baptizing, praying, and healing. They go around doing the very stuff Jesus did. Remember the evidence Jesus listed off? The Lord has anointed me to proclaim the good news. They preached the gospel. The the church always has and always will preach the gospel. That's the practice we just came from. But they did more than just preach the gospel because the evidence of the Holy Spirit also includes freedom, healing, and forgiveness. And in Acts, in addition to the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved, we also read stories about prayer where jail cells fling open. And Peter and John heal a paralytic elderly man on the way into church, and then he dances at the front during the opening worship song. And Paul preaches a sermon so long that someone dozes off, falls out of a second-story window, dies, and then gets healed before the benediction. And daily, they are serving food to the oppressed and to the vulnerable. And in the midst of all of that supernatural outbreak, they also suffered. And they continued to grieve. And they questioned and they doubted. And they went through spells, sometimes long ones, of spiritual apathy. How? How can those two things coexist? How can supernatural power and natural pain and hardship exist together in one community? Because we're talking about a relationship with a person, not a box of magic tricks. The church, led by the Spirit, looks like the continuation of everything Jesus started, and it looks very flawed, because that everything was given to ordinary flawed people like you and me. The rest of the Bible is essentially just a bunch of ordinary people tabernacling. Ordinary people filled with the Holy Spirit, carrying on the ministry Jesus started. Finally, us. The final stop on this whirlwind tour through the Bible is in 1 Corinthians. Will you turn with me to the letter of 1 Corinthians? I'm going to pick up in just a moment in chapter 3. Now, what I'm about to read to you is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to the church at Corinth. This is a letter written to be read in a gathering, much like this one, to a church, much like this one, in a city, a whole lot like this one. This letter is to us. 1 Corinthians 3, beginning in verse 16. Don't you know that you, now that's the plural you. In ancient Greek, there were several different words for you that indicated whether we're talking about a group of people or a single person. In English, we just have the the one you, so it's hard to translate. That's why the South invented y'all. And it's why in the passage we read, there's this very clumsy you yourselves, because we're talking about a gathered community. We're talking about the church. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst so there's still a tabernacle there's still a place where God's glory dwells and it's you or actually it's y'all 
It's the gathered church. It's not the building, but it's the collective lives of Jesus' followers. As a community, we are bound together by the Holy Spirit. And that's why we're talking about regathering in person as your circumstances and comfort level allow you to. Because when we come together, the glory of the Lord is in the atmosphere, just like Moses' tent, just like Solomon's temple, and just like Jesus' body. But there's even more. Just turn a page or two to chapter 6 of this very same letter. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19. Don't you know that your bodies, now this time it's singular. This time it's your individual physical body we're talking about. Don't you know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Now, on a personal note, my grandma used this verse to tell me that I should never smoke. And she was way off. It's about so much more than that. Now, it's probably good that I wasn't smoking in Newport 100 at age 12 while waiting on the bus stop at elementary school. But she does listen to our church's podcast out of love for me, and so this is my passive-aggressive response more than two decades later. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you? That's singular. Who is in you, and in you, and in you, and in you. You, your physical body, is now a Selah, just like it was at first. It is the dwelling place of God through the Holy Spirit. You are filled with the very Spirit of Jesus. So a quick recap here. Here is the familiar stranger in the background of the whole Bible getting closer and closer and closer as the story moves forward. At creation, God affirms Adam and Eve's bodies as dwelling places for his spirit, living temples. And then in the Old Testament, God fills Moses' tabernacle, then Solomon's temple. God's Spirit comes to live in the heart of the city with his people. In Jesus, God's Spirit fills a person whose life, death, and resurrection breaks every barrier between God and us so that the church is a community of people bound together by God's Spirit. And every time we gather, God is here in our midst. That's us. But it's even more intimate than that. You, any one of you who accepts Jesus' offer of life by grace is then filled with God's Spirit exactly as he was. That is the story of the Bible. If I had to sum it up in a single sentence along this theme, I would say God's Spirit has been given to us and to you. That is so, so beautiful, but it's way more than just poetry. It's practice. Let's go back to the very last night of Jesus' life, that long conversation he was having about going away and sending his spirit. Jesus also said this in that conversation. Very truly I tell you, now that's Jesus for this is not hyperbole, I actually mean this. Very truly I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the very works I've been doing and they will do even greater things than these because I'm going to the Father. That's John 14, 12. So whoever believes in me will do the works I've been doing by my spirit. Now there's so much debate among scholars about exactly what Jesus meant by even greater things. Like is it quantity of works or quality of works Jesus is talking about here? We know at least this much, that Jesus didn't mean less and not as good things than what you've seen me doing. And to fixate on that part is actually to miss the most staggering claim in the verse. The key word here is whoever. Very truly, I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I've been doing. They'll do even greater things than these because I'm going to the Father. 
See, Jesus has made us all tabernacles filled with his presence and his power, doing the very things that we've seen him doing. And who is that offer for? Whoever. The power of God has been shared with whoever will receive it. Eugene Peterson says, it is the lived conviction that everything, absolutely everything in the scriptures is livable. Not just true, but livable. This is the supernatural core, a lived resurrection and Holy Spirit core of the Christian life. To borrow a phrase from Jordan Singh, the the Holy Spirit's job description is to make the impracticable, I'm sorry, the impractical, practicable. The Holy Spirit makes the totally impractical, uh, the supernatural, the miraculous, the gospel ministry of Jesus, not just practical, wow, this is a hard phrase, not just practical, but practicable. So it's not only possible in extreme situations by super spiritual people, but it's actually practicable by the high school student struggling with pushing the envelope with his girlfriend. And by the stressed out businessman who's financially in over his head. And by the mom that can barely pay attention because she's sure their kids are going ballistic in kids ministry. And by the half interested guy that's only here because she's here. And by the doubter with her arms crossed who has an objection and a counterpoint to what I'm saying. And the woman on the edge of her seat because she wants it so bad she just can't even stand it. Everyone. Every child of God, everyone who has received Jesus is then filled with his spirit to make the impractical practicable. Karl Barth called this the impossible possibility. And who's it for? Whoever. Whoever believes in me, this is what you can expect from your life. Yeah, but if that's true, then what about, and what about, and what about, we'll get there. I promise we'll get there. We've got two and a half months. But for a moment, will you just dream with me? I mean, what if God's biggest dreams for us as a church aren't only that more people would fill our seats and that we'd add more communities all over the four quadrants of our city? Uh, and don't get me wrong, it definitely includes that, but what if it also includes the addicted finding freedom? That in a city with a long history of substance abuse, a new reputation emerges for freedom by the name of Jesus. And what if it includes people who are obsessively distracted with their appearance and and the success of their startup, finally finding the freedom to go to work because it doesn't have to hold the weight of their worth anymore? And what if it includes being free enough to spend a Friday night at a Michelin star restaurant with your best friends or at a nursing home serving food on trays to widows and be equally present, equally happy, and equally alive in both places? And what if it includes the terminally ill being wheeled from Providence Hospital down Broadway and into this church because there's this rumor that people here actually pray for healing and every once in a while it works? And what if it includes a simple word that cuts all the way to the hardest heart and prayers that carry the weight of the king himself and a sense of joy that cannot be stolen. If it includes all of that, you've got to admit that that does sound a lot more fun. (laughs) That, that is the dream that put light in Jesus' eyes, even on the night of his execution, that everything that might be yours and mine. And one of the great tragedies, maybe the great tragedy in the church of our time, is that the Holy Spirit has become a familiar stranger. I mean, it must break the heart of Jesus. The spirit he was so eager to give us has become unknown, feared, and divisive. The Holy Spirit is unknown. I mean, back to that survey, 58% of Christians in the West aren't even, sure that, aren't even aware that the spirit is a being to know and be known by. 
That means the majority of people go in and out of churches, ordering their whole lives around the teaching of Jesus, totally unaware of how close he's actually come to them. And the reason that so many of us would reverse the deal with Jesus if we could, that we trade in the intimacy of the Spirit for just a chat with the Son, is because the Holy Spirit's become a stranger. And some, even in this family, sit here and honestly feel like, you know what, man, if this is it, okay, if this, if my experience up to this point is everything that the victory of Jesus won for me, then I'm honestly underwhelmed and a touch disappointed. If this is all that he accomplished. Billy Graham says, everywhere I go, I find that God's people lack something. They are hungry for something. Their Christian experience is not all they had expected, and they often have recurring defeat in their lives. Christians today are hungry for spiritual fulfillment. The desperate need of the nation today is that men and women who profess Jesus be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, those are the words of a not particularly charismatic theologically sound gospel preacher who traveled the globe seeing the church in every variety and form and after all of that his major takeaway was the church is missing the Holy Spirit longing for the Holy Spirit needing the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit's unknown the Holy Spirit's also become feared there's a summary phrase used by the gospel writer Luke all that Jesus began to do and teach and the order of that statement is important do and then teach, because this is how Jesus typically did things. Not always, but typically. He would uh, offer people an experience first, and then an explanation of their experience would follow second. And in a post-enlightenment, highly intellectual, fashionably cynical city like Portland, we prefer the reverse order. We're very suspicious of experience. So teach me everything so that I can get it logically. And then if I do, if it passes that test, maybe I'll be open to the experience. And the only trouble with that way of thinking is the entire Bible. That the scriptures are basically just person after person after person who had an experience with God and is then sorting out the implications of that experience. The New Testament church that we're always admiring and trying to recapture the magic of was mostly illiterate peasants without a completed copy of the New Testament. The scriptures that are based on their lives are then the Holy Spirit-saturated historic accounts of ordinary people experiencing God in every variety, and then on the other side of that experience, sorting out the implications. And what God taught them in the midst of an outpouring became the bedrock for future generations to build on, and here we are, living a couple centuries downstream, benefiting from God revealed through both word and spirit, and many generations of faithful Jesus followers working out the essential nature of both. But in our time, the experiential aspect of that equation has grown unfashionable and is in many cases feared. So if we want to be led by the Spirit, we have to become comfortable with a God who often offers experience first and explanation second. Simon Ponsonby, an Oxford scholar, an intellectual who teaches for a living, wrote this, I purposely emphasize the word experience, and I will seek to show from the scripture the importance of experience. A non-experiential religion is suspect, for it fails to deal with the totality of our being. And look, if hunger and curiosity won't open you up to more of God, then maybe honest discontent will. 
And so Kurt Thompson, the, the neurobiologist and clinical psychiatrist who also happens to be a person of faith, wrote this. Despite the interest in spirituality in much of the West, and North America in particular, our overall experience of God's power and life-giving vitality is often limited. We often see life in Jesus as being more about survival than about grace, adventure, and genuine, concrete, life-giving change. Finally, the Holy Spirit has become divisive. Will you just take a look at the cover of the Bible that you've been following along with me in? Likely on that cover it says, Holy Bible. Right? Which is fascinating because the phrase Holy Bible appears exactly zero times in the Holy Bible. This isn't particularly true around the world, but at least in this country there's been a division between Bible churches and Holy Spirit churches. Like there are certain churches that preach the Bible with excellence and intellect and thoughtfulness, but the experience of the Holy Spirit is varying degrees of absent. And there's other churches where the Holy Spirit is real and present and sought, but they often diminish the Bible into just like a script for shallow pep talks. So when I say we're going to talk today about the Holy Spirit, I'm painfully aware that just with the mention of that phrase, the room splinters into to a couple of different groups and that there's some people who nervously squirm and a guard goes up because that's not been a part of my experience up to this point. And if it hasn't been, then it must be, I must be suspicious of it. Or because that's all too familiar an experience up to this point. And maybe you've come from a toxic, manipulative, spiritual environment where anything that even hints at this today feels unsafe and must be resisted. And then there's others of you that when I say, we're going to talk today about the Holy Spirit, are like, oh yeah, come on. Bridgetown's finally getting serious about the charismatic. You guys are a little slow for me, but I'm glad you're finally coming around. And neither of those things is what I'm saying. I'm not trying to advocate for either kind of church. I, I, I want you to see that the spirit of unity that Jesus gave as the bonding agent for the church has become the dividing agent of the church. And that must break the heart of Jesus. He must be so jealous for his body back. Because the kingdom of God is not an either-or kind of kingdom. It's a both-and kind of kingdom. It is the Bible and the Holy Spirit, thinking and feeling, teaching and, and experiencing the gospel and signs and wonders, contemplation and the charismatic, exegeting the text and sharing a word of prophecy, bearing with God through suffering and being delivered by God from suffering. What a moment! Right To be in a city like this one, in a church like this one, and together to be able to say emphatically yes to the Holy Bible. Yes to bringing the full complexity of my life thoughtfully and intellectually and emotionally to wrestle with God through his revelation of people throughout history written down in the sacred text. And yes to the Holy Spirit. Yes to the intimate presence and supernatural power of a God who is both with us and within us. Now everything I've said is an introduction. Because today we begin our 12th and final practice in the five-year journey called Practicing the Way. And on a personal level, it is a huge gift for me to lead the last leg of a discipleship journey begun by my friend and brother, John Mark. And so if you're new around here, we call these practices, not teachings, because everything we teach on Sundays is just a setup for lived experience in communities throughout the week. In other words, the teaching is not the main event. 
The teaching is the invitation. The experience stepping into the reality of the teaching in the context of community, that's the main event. So if you're not in a community, get in one. Basics is next week. That's the way into a community within this church. You can sign up for it online right now. It begins next Sunday after the gathering. Demonstrating the gospel. That's what we've called this practice because that is the work the Spirit empowers. We've just come from a practice called preaching the gospel. That's when Jesus described what his kingdom would look like when it invaded this one. But demonstrating the gospel, that's when Jesus pulled back the curtain and gave us a glimpse. He gave us a taste of his kingdom that we might hunger for more of it. So over the next three weeks, I want to build a biblical foundation for us to stand on. We're going to get acquainted with the person of the Holy Spirit through water, breath, and dove, three of the primary uh, biblical metaphors used to describe the Spirit's identity. The three weeks that follow that will be an exploration of the Spirit's expressions. We're going to talk about mercy and justice, prophecy and healing here on Sundays, three of the primary biblical ministries of the Holy Spirit. We're also planning a midweek lecture on deliverance ministry. And then in the closing two weeks of the series, there's just going to be an invitation to become. So for us at Bridgetown Church in Portland in 2021, how are we being invited by God to become a naturally supernatural, biblically faithful, and spirit-led individuals and community, bodies and body? Now, all of that is laid out on practicingtheway.org slash demonstrating, including the practice for the coming week for you and your community. But here is the big idea for today. The Holy Spirit is a person to know, not a force to capture. I don't want to get you all wound up about the power of the Spirit or about the experience of the Spirit. I want to introduce you to the person of the Spirit. And you cannot know a person by learning about them. That is the terribly limiting aspect of these sermons I'm preaching to you. Is that I could read... I could interview your friends and family. I could read your memoir. I could stalk your Instagram profile. I won't, but I could. And after all of that, if I sat down across from you face to face, I wouldn't know you any better. You would just be to me a slightly more familiar stranger. I'd have more information, but you would still be a stranger. To know the Holy Spirit, to experience what Jesus was talking about on his last night, that requires more than just listening to a sermon series. It requires the risk of relationship. It means personally interacting with God as spirit. It means learning to enjoy the presence of God, to tune your ear to his still small whisper, and to walk in step with the spirit. It is so much more personal, and it is so much better. So to know the Holy Spirit, in my experience, comes through intimacy, holiness, and faith and so I want to land there, just with a three-way invitation, intimacy, holiness, and faith. First, intimacy. The Holy Spirit, before anything else, is just this. God has gone to such great lengths to be close to you. He has lived with you, died your death, given you his life, and he's filled you with his very breath. God's gone to such great lengths to be close to you. His goal was never just to get us into his presence. It was to get his presence into us. And the story of the Bible is less a story about how close we can get to God and so much more a story about how close God has come to us. The Holy Spirit is the intimate revelation of that story within us. It's a spirit of intimacy before anything else. This is why John Wimber said, when I speak of hearing God's voice, I mean developing a practice of communion with the Father. 
Now we're talking about the spirit of Jesus here, and Jesus craved intimacy with the Father seemingly more than anything else. Jesus frequently stayed up all night in prayer. He slipped off to be with the Father at sunrise. He withdrew from the crowds in the midst of exhaustion for rest in God's presence. And when explaining his whole ministry, he summed it up this way. He said, I'm only doing what I see my Father doing. So preaching the gospel, serving the poor, healing the sick, freeing the addicted and the oppressed, it was all just the overflow of intimacy. Jesus is saying, my life is not about effort or even power. It's about friendship. And the invitation is to deeper friendship. This friendship just so happens to spill the banks of your life in the form of heaven on earth. So do you have a practice of communion with God? In every relationship, it's built on both planned and spontaneous times. So so do you have a planned, committed way of meeting with God through the word and prayer? And then secondly, does that ordered commitment then give way to spontaneous friendship in your life? Do you find yourself interacting with God as you walk the dog? Or in your commute home from work at the end of a long day? Or on a Saturday morning when you happen to wake up and the kids are still asleep for a few minutes? Do you make space regularly at the beginning of the day or at intervals throughout the day to be with God? The very God who is always present to you, do you tune your ear to him? The Holy Spirit's a person to know, not a power to wield or a presence to enjoy, but first and foremost, a person to know. So will you make space to know him as we work our way through these teachings? And and if for you that means a new morning routine, then go for it. And if it means that you change up your evening commute and instead of scrolling your Twitter feed, you use it to speak to the Father, then that's great. And if it means slightly more intentional space in your weekend, then that sounds great too. Secondly, holiness. When we talk about the Spirit, usually people think about we're now going to have wilder church experiences and tell more powerful stories. So it's helpful to remember right up front that we're talking about the Holy Spirit. There's got to be at least somebody in here thinking, look, all this is great, man, but how can I dream of giving sight to the blind when I can't stop sleeping with my boyfriend? Or, Or I can't break through this pornography addiction, or I can't get through a dinner with friends without jealousy and materialism creeping into my thoughts. So you guys go ahead and heal the sick. I'm going to be over here trying to sort my stuff out. Jesus did not lower the standard of holiness. Sin still doesn't mix with God's presence. It is the one thing that we can fill our life with that will crowd out room for God. Jesus didn't lower the standard of holiness, but Jesus did redefine the term holiness. Soren Kierkegaard defines sin not as the breaking of moral rules, but as not wanting to be oneself before God. So Jesus' standard of holiness is not moral perfection, it is confession. It's allowing God to see you. It's dragging your whole self, especially that one part of you that you're trying to get all sorted out in the dark, into the light of God's presence. This is why the common biblical name for our spiritual enemy is accuser, and the name Jesus gives to the Holy Spirit is advocate. It's the direct opposite. The Spirit is the antidote to our opposition. So if you're thinking, I'll get into all this Spirit stuff when I get blank sorted out, you should know right up front that the Spirit even now is the advocating voice in the Father's right ear pleading your case against accusation. So here is your whole part. Just allow yourself to be seen. Just bring your whole self, especially the parts of you that you think are unpresentable, into His presence and allow Him to advocate for you. Finally, faith. Scripture speaks of both quenching and fanning into flame the Spirit in the letters of 1 Thessalonians and 2 Timothy. The Spirit is as powerful as a dense cloud and a pillar of fire and as gentle. 
that he might be quenchable by our resistance. Now, both quenching and fanning into flame are, are subject to faith or connected to faith. When the Spirit speaks to us, it often feels like a subtle prompting or this deep knowing that I should act in some particular way. Right? I should speak to that person or offer to take that coworker to lunch or financially bless that family or pray for him or her. It's almost always a prompting towards something that makes me feel horribly awkward and uncomfortable. And when God speaks, it's always because God wants to act, right? We know that God says, let there be light, and boom, there's light. And that in the Gospels, every time they mention that Jesus was moved deeply in his emotions, it's always immediately connected to his action. There's, there's never an instance where that doesn't occur. Jesus is moved, and then he feeds the hungry. Then he heals the leper. Then he offers deliverance to the possessed. There is no separating God's intention from his action, but that separation does exist within us. One of the consequences of sin is that you and I can be moved deeply, but that remain invisible within us and never spill into the world outside of us. But something happens within me, in my spirit, that, that becomes healing in the world when I keep in step with what God is doing within me, when I say yes to those subtle promptings. When in faith, I move through my discomfort to say yes to the prompting of the Spirit, I fan into flame the Spirit within me. And what you'll notice is that the Spirit's voice becomes clearer and more frequent in your life as you say yes. But the opposite is also true. That when you surrender to your own comfort and you say no, the prompting of the Spirit then begins to be quenched within you. And God's voice becomes harder to hear and less frequent. So if God's voice is not a regular part of your day, I would just encourage you to ask yourself, when is the last time I allowed God to move me beyond my comfort zone? And if it's hard for you to remember, I'd encourage you to start trying to find a way to say yes. My friend Pete defines faith as the length of time between God speaking and my acting. That's good, right? That helps. Helps me. When we walk in faith, we befriend the Holy Spirit because we walk in step with the Spirit. What kind of stories might come out of the next couple months in the life of this church if we just all decided, by acting in faith, I'm going to close the gap between God's voice and my action. I'm going to fan and deflame the Spirit within me. I wonder what kind of unbelievable, I can't even conceive of the possibility right now kind of stories would come from that. Recently on a Saturday night, not too long ago, I climbed into bed with a few tears running down my cheeks because I just watched the Coldplay documentary. <laughs> that new one on Amazon, A Head Full of Dreams. Have you seen it? Oh, it's so good. I'm not even really into Coldplay. I, I really liked parachutes and clocks, but Chris Martin lost me after that. And then I saw this film and I was like, you got me again, Chris. I am back in. It's this film, it's a masterpiece. Four friends who have ridden this long way from being college buddies to international fame. They've written a bunch of songs along the way. They've somehow managed to say friends through all of that. It's a masterpiece, but there's this one bit that really got me. And it's this, the drummer for Coldplay didn't know how to play the drums. Did you know that? He, he was a musician, but he didn't play drums. His college roommate played drums, and his college roommate was auditioning with the other three guys. And so as a favor to him, he set up the drum kit, and then his roommate no-showed. But they had already booked their first show and they really needed a drummer and they were like, look man, we gotta rehearse these songs. Since you play other instruments, will you just try to play the drums? And he did at that rehearsal and you know what? He was really bad at it. He sounded exactly like a guy who didn't know how to play the drums. <laughs> but they had a show coming up so he played that show with them and then one thing led to another and a few decades later, he's the drummer for a band that defined a generation. So what I'm trying to say to you is if you say yes to the Spirit, you could be the drummer for Coldplay. 
I'm just kidding. I cannot guarantee it will work out like that. But I cannot guarantee that it won't. I've really got to land the plane. Okay, so what I'm actually trying to say is that God's never cared that much for the gifted or the qualified, but he shaped history through the available. But the gospel part of that story is that there was a guy who was not gifted. He was not qualified, but he was available. And so he got written into a story that he never could have imagined being written into. So I just want to ask you this. Are you available? I hope you're ungifted. I hope you don't think you're qualified. But are you available? Are you available? Are you available?